Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you today. Invite you to take your Bibles and head on over to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10 today. If you're new to Redeeming Grace, we have been in Romans since September. Um, what is this, June? So we're making our way through the book of Romans slowly but surely, and we find ourselves today well deep within the mine of Romans, mining these wonderful uh, teachings of God's unfailing grace. And we're coming to, slowly coming to a conclusion of the first 11 chapters, which are more focused upon uh, explaining uh, for us the grace of God and how salvation works. It's more doctrinal, if we, we could say it that way. And then the chapters 12 through 16 are much more practical, even though you find doctrine and practice in both sections of the book of Romans. But today we're in Romans chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. We'll read those verses now. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for revealing yourself and showing us what is true. Father, now as we seek to understand these 10 verses of Romans 11, would you give us understanding? Would you give us insight? And Father, would you help us see how they are very much relevant for us today? We ask for your help now, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What, has anybody ever played the game Jenga? Did I say that right? Raise your hand. All right. It's the only time I can get Baptists to raise their hands. All right. Uh, yeah, so it's a fun game, isn't it? I, I think it's one of my favorite games. We're not a huge game family, but we play games from time to time. But I love to play the game Jenga, and it can get quite intense, can it? Especially for those of you who are highly competitive by nature, it can become one of those intense games. Jenga involves 54 wooden blocks, little wooden blocks that are stacked in 18 stories or levels to make a tower three blocks to each level. I can do math this morning. The object of the game is to see how high you can get the tower without it falling. So when each person takes his or her turn, they remove one block at a time from any of the stories or levels except the top completed level. You can take from any level 
and you take it out and you place it up on top and it begins to make the tower somewhat unstable as time goes on. And the game ends when the tower collapses and the one who makes it fall, that's the loser. Maybe there's other variations of the game that you've played before, but that's the basics of the game Jenga. And again, it can be quite intense. I mean, there's been those times where you really get into the game and the tower becomes more and more unstable. And, and there are times when it's your turn and you're thinking, this has got to be it. I mean, I'm going to be the one that causes this, this thing to go down. And you grab that block and you see the thing moving back and forth and you remove it and it stays. You stack it on top and you're safe convinced the next person is going to make it happen but it seems that maybe it goes another round or another round and then another and then the inevitable moment comes doesn't it perhaps when you least expect it but maybe when everyone expects it you pull that block out and the entire tower comes crumbling down and then we finally have a loser and a winner well I thought about that game and I thought about what Paul is in essence writing here when it came to the salvation that Paul preached, it might have seemed to many like a Jenga kind of moment for the Jewish people. It might have seemed like the last piece of God's promise to Israel was, was or has been pulled or was about to be pulled and the promise that God made to them long ago would be soon to crumble, come tumbling down. Why is that? Well, as we've been seeing in Romans chapter 9, 10, and now we come to chapter 11, we know that the vast majority of the Jewish people had rejected the Messiah. As the gospel of grace was preached and proclaimed, the vast majority of the Jewish people had said, no, we do not see Jesus as the Messiah. And this grieved the apostle Paul, didn't it? We saw that in chapter 9. Paul is grieved over the fact that most of his Jewish people are not Christians. And yet he knew that God's word in chapter 9 had not failed because God always had a remnant of believers in every age. And that was, we saw in chapter 9, was a testimony to God's electing grace. But nevertheless, he still longed for more and more of his people to embrace Jesus as Messiah. Get to chapter 10, and we see from a human perspective, the reason that most of the Jewish people had not come to Christ was because they were seeking God in the wrong way. They were seeking to have salvation based upon their own good works, weren't they? They were, they were striving to keep the law and the additions that they had added to the law as a means to earn salvation. And yet, they failed. Despite the unbelief of the Jews, many Gentiles were responding to the gospel. Many were coming to faith. And we know that there in chapter 10, this was true because the gospel was good for all. It's good for both Jew and Gentile. The, the same problem existed for Jews and Gentiles, and the same solution was available for both Jews and Gentiles. The problem was is that the vast majority of the Jews had rejected the solution, but now the Gentiles were embracing it, and many of them were coming to faith in Christ. So we're told there in chapter 10, the very ones who sought God by works did not find him, and yet the ones, the Gentiles, who weren't even looking for God, found him. And all of this gets us now to chapter 11, which deals with a very important question. 
See the question in verse 1. I ask then, based upon everything that we've seen in chapters 9 and 10, this, this rejection of the Messiah, this reality that the vast majority of the Jewish people had, had not embraced Jesus, I ask then, Paul says, has God rejected his people? Has the promises of God somehow failed, crumbled? And this is a huge question to answer. Don't think that just because the vast majority of you here today are not Jewish that this really is an important question to answer. This is huge. Now, it's likely that there are many passages of Scripture that are, that, that are driving Paul to ask this question and then answer it. We have several passages we could go to in the Old Testament. Jeremy read from Psalm 111 earlier as a passage we could go to. But in 1 Samuel chapter 22, or excuse me, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22, this is in the context when Israel had proved themselves unfaithful by asking for a king. They said, hey, we're not happy. We're not like everybody else. Everybody else has one. Why can't we, right? Ever heard that before? Everybody else has a king. We want a king. So God gives them a king. And they become, in many ways, just like the other nations. But we get to 1 Samuel chapter 12, and the people become convicted over their sin of not trusting God and asking for a king. They become convicted over this sin, and then Samuel urges them to repent and reassures them with this promise in chapter 12, verse 22. This is what it says. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people. You go to Psalm chapter 94, verse 14, and find something very similar. This is during a period of time when God's people were suffering under oppression from the ungodly and unfaithful rulers of its day. And the psalmist reassures the people of God, again, with the same language, for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people. So we find this, this, this phrase, this refrain, we could say, in the Old Testament, for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people. You get to the New Testament, you get to the time and day in which Jesus comes and fulfills all the things that the prophets had pointed to, and, and he and he's living his life and doing his ministry, and yet, time after time after time again, who is it that Jesus seems to be rubbing up against and, and, and defending? Well, it's many of the Jewish leaders. It's the Jewish people themselves. And it's not, it's, it's not hard to see why one could conclude, now by the time we get well into the the establishment of the church after Jesus had come and died and been raised and ascended into heaven, the vast majority of the Jewish people saying, no, we don't believe he was the one, you could, you could reasonably conclude the same things that many concluded during this day and time. Well, maybe God, maybe God has kind of, maybe he's through with Israel. Maybe he's done with them. Maybe he's moving on to plan B. Well, that's not at all what's going on. And that's exactly what Paul wants to deal with in this passage. So basically, as we come to Romans chapter 11 today, the main point that we're, we're making here is that God has not and does not reject his people. 
God has not and does not reject his people. And as we consider that fact, that God has not rejected his people, I want us to, to approach that by answering two questions today. Why, why can we know that's true, and why does it matter? How can we know, based upon what we see here in the text, how can we know that it's true that God hadn't abandoned the Jewish people? And why does it matter for us today, 2018? Two questions we want to seek to answer today. First of all, why it is true. Why it is true that God has not rejected his people. Again, while it seemed like the promise of God had, the, the promises that God made to the Jews way back in the Old Testament, that they would be his people, etc., it seemed like that promise was now in jeopardy due to their unbelief. So Paul seeks to reassure us that God's plan has not failed. And he begins this defense and and, and he shows us really through three particular proofs why it's true that God has not abandoned his people. Three things that he points out here to show us why this is true. First of all, we see this through a personal testimony in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Look at what Paul says next. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is like, hey, check out exhibit A. Look at me. I'm Jewish. I'm an Israelite. I come from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul himself was a living example of the fact that even though the vast majority of the Jews had turned their back on God, God, in fact, had not turned his back on them. Paul was about as Jewish as you could get. In fact, if you turn over to Philippians chapter 3, you kind of see Paul's resume. Philippians chapter 3, just a few pages over there to the right. Paul's writing to the church at Philippi. And in the midst of what he's saying to them, he, he's counseling them, he's warning them about those who would do them wrong and lead them astray. And then, then he picks up in verse 3 of Philippians 3. He says, For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was about as Jewish as you could get. I mean, he was a Pharisee. He he had sought to live his life, most of his life, in this way. He was a prime candidate to be just like the vast majority of the Jewish people who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, he was well on his way to doing just that. He was a persecutor of the church. As people were be hearing the gospel and being saved, Paul was actually, as a Pharisee back in the day, Saul, persecuting them. Seeking to do harm to those who had believed in the gospel. This was Paul before his conversion. 
And yet God radically intervened in his life, saved him, and turned his life upside down. Now, I think Paul lists himself here as an example for a couple of reasons. Not because he had something to boast about, not because he, he just happened to figure things out. Just not, he's not listing his own testimony here to point out just how wise he was. Now, what he's doing, he's pointing out his own testimony here just to show how great God is. That despite his own human failures, God was amazingly gracious. First of all, it shows that God hadn't given up on the Jews. Though they may have been few in number in this day, there was a remnant of them. God hadn't given up on them. Paul says, I'm one of them. But secondly, I think his example reminds us of just, again, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, just how far God will go to save someone. Friends, God is still in the business of saving sinners, amen? God is still in the business of saving not just sinners, but the hardest of sinners and the most unlikely of people who would ever bow the knee to Jesus. Paul fit that category perfectly. He was Jewish. He was an Israelite. He was a Pharisee. He was a persecutor of the church. Just go back to Philippians 3. Review his resume there. I mean, if anyone was bound for for doom and destruction because of their rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was Paul. And God, in his great mercy and grace, saved him. Brothers and sisters, we often look at Paul as a great hero of the faith, and to some degree I guess he can be. But I like to think about Paul many times like this. If, if, if God can save and transform somebody like Paul, he can save anyone. He can save anyone. Brothers and sisters, when we, when we hear this own testimony of Paul here, for I myself am, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, he's pointing back to his Jewishness. He's pointing back to just how, how much he had been uh, entrenched in this lifestyle, seeking a salvation that was not by grace, but a very different way. One of the immediate implications we draw from this is, is for us never to give up on those who are hostile and hardened to the truth of the gospel. I think we all give up way too quickly on many, many people. I want you to think about right now, just someone in your life, it could be a family member, a friend, some coworker that you've been working with for a long time, and you've thought to yourself, there's no way they will ever love Jesus. Just no way. So you've even quit talking to them about that. Friend, if you've thought to yourself that there's no hope for them, then you do not believe in a gospel of grace. You believe in a gospel of works. If you've given up on someone, your understanding of salvation isn't grace. Because God saves sinners. Sinners don't save themselves. God transformed Paul in a 
miraculous way and turned his life upside down that he became one of the greatest evangelists and church planters and pastors, we could say, of history. Friends, never give up on those whom seem the most unlikely candidates to come to Christ. Some of you in this room were that person. And you today could give testimony of just how powerful God's grace is in your own life. Paul is here to prove that God hasn't rejected his people, but again, he shows here just through his own testimony that God continues to save. And by the way, don't ever underestimate the role of your own personal testimony with others. While it's not the gospel, it is a great tool that often can accompany the gospel in helping people understand how God, through the gospel, has transformed your life. Don't be afraid to tell your story. You say, well, my story's not all that elaborate. Grew up in church, did this, you know, and came to Jesus early. Friends, anybody that comes to Christ is a testimony to the power of the gospel of grace. Don't ever, don't ever downplay your story. So we see a personal testimony. Paul points to himself. Reason number two of why this was true, that God hadn't rejected his people, was he uses now a historical example we could say a biblical example, verses 2 through 4, he goes back and he recounts an event that took place in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Kings, it's right before 2 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19, you can go back there and what we have there just to kind of set up the context is we have a king in Israel by the name of King Ahab. King Ahab we come, comes along and we're told that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He had constructed altars to the false god Baal. And the scripture actually says that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord than all others before him. That's not something you want to be said of you. He was a bad dude. So the prophet Elijah comes along, and he confronts Ahab and many others about this reality. And the prophet Elijah stands up against the prophets of Baal. And so what happens in chapter 18 and 19 is there, there really hap- is this big contest. I mean, you think the Stanley Cup and the NBA Finals were something? No way. The World Cup, not compared to what happened here in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. So basically all of Israel and the prophets of Baal, some 450 of them, gather at Mount Carmel and there was this face-off between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They construct an altar, they lay out a sacrifice, and basically the one, both sides would call upon the name of their God and the, one, and the, and, and the God that, that brought about fire to consume the, the sacrifice was the winner. The prophets of Baal go first, and they call upon Baal, and they call upon Baal, and Elijah, after so much time had gone past, he, he, he kind of makes fun of them a little bit, doesn't he? It's a great story. You should go back and read it this afternoon, not while I'm preaching. Uh, Elijah starts to poke fun at them, and maybe he's, he can't hear you. Maybe he's on a journey somewhere. Maybe he's in the bathroom. It's in the Bible. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's taking a nap. 
You know, so Elijah's just kind of point, poking and prodding with them a little bit and, and messing with them, and nothing happens. And then the prophet Elijah calls upon the Lord to make a long story short. Not only did he do that, he, he drenched the entire altar with water. And Elijah calls upon the name of the Lord, and immediately fire consumed the altar, and the prophets of Baal were defeated. Embarrassed, they were immediately executed. Elijah was excited, and we're told in the text, and the hand of the Lord was upon Elijah. Well, King Ahab and another character by the name of Jezebel didn't take very well to this embarrassment. Very next chapter, in chapter 19, Elijah basically now, after this great victory, Elijah's now on the run for his life. And he's in hiding. It's during this time that, that Elijah pleads to God and basically tells God, it looks like your promises are about to fall through, for I am the last man. I alone am left. There's so much to that story. I just think about how... How quickly things change in Elijah's perspective. He's hiding, he's fearful, and he's telling God, this seems like it's it. And the Lord then speaks to Elijah and says, you need to slow down, big boy. You're not the only one left because I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So don't think you're the last one. I've got a remnant. See, the point here that Paul is pointing back to this story is just to, to show us by example, historical example, a biblical example from the Old Testament, that even when it seemed like Israel was at its worst and the promises seemed to be in jeopardy, God was always faithful to have his people God was always faithful. God always had a remnant. God's promise has never been in jeopardy of failing. Never. Just read the Bible, whether it was Noah and his family in Genesis 6, Abraham in Genesis 12, Joseph in Genesis 37, or the generation following the wilderness, or through Joshua, or the prophets, or Elijah, or the 7,000 that didn't bow the knee to Baal, or Daniel, or Esther, or Ruth, or Naomi, God has always had a people for himself. And brothers and sisters, based upon God's work in the past, that ought to bring comfort and hope to those of us in the present. History demonstrates the faithfulness of God. For those of you who don't like history, you need to repent. It's, it's filled full of God's faithfulness. Now, while it's the Jews that are certainly in view here, I think that we can find this as a word of hope for us all. Friends, there will often be times when we feel as if we're the only believers around. It's comfortable in here, isn't it? I'm talking about the temperature. It's comfortable to be in here today. It's good. This is a wonderful blessing to be gathered with our brothers and sisters today. This is a good thing. 
Praise God for this. But here in a little while, we'll be scattered, right? Little sheep running all over St. Mary's County. And sometimes you get lonely out there. Sometimes it feels like you're a little isolated out there. Maybe you're the only Christian in your family. Maybe you're the only Christian on your whole floor at work. Your neighborhood. School's out, but when you're in school, you look around and you're like, Where? I think I'm the only one that truly follows Jesus. Feels that way. Many times, friends, it will feel like that is the case. But you should be encouraged here because we're being told that God always has a remnant. God has a people for himself, and you should be encouraged by that fact that God's plans and God's promises cannot and will not fall. Not only does Paul point to a historical example, he gives us a theological truth. You have a personal testimony, a historical example, and now a theological truth. Notice in verse 2, Paul says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then after the reference to Elijah, he makes this statement. So too, just like in Elijah's day, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So Paul now, for the third time, gives another argument, and this one's theological, and he points to God's election, God's work of sovereign grace. And this theological argument is central to Paul's defense of God keeping his promise demonstrates here that God has superintended the work of having and preserving a people for himself. Listen, if God didn't do it, there would be no remnants. So for Paul, he took comfort. Even when he was grieved and even when he was pressed and even when he was struggling with all that he saw and experienced, Paul took comfort in knowing that the God who made promises is the God who fulfills promises. And the important piece of this information that we have here in this, in this, in this verse, verse 5, so too there at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. The important piece of information that we all need to see here is that the way this election happens is by grace, not by works. It's an unconditional election. It's not a conditional election based upon what God sees, good or bad, in people. It's based simply upon his generous grace. Friends, again, if salvation were somehow dependent upon human works, then there would be no, the, there, there would be no need of grace. That's what he s- says there in verse 6. Think about that. The grace of God. We, we, that's a church word, right? We say that a lot. We, talk about a lo- we, we use that language a lot. It's in our name, redeeming grace, primarily because we don't want you to forget it. But the grace of God ought to be one of the most amazing and attractive truths in your entire life that you build your life upon. 
It's a beautiful gift of God and one that never should be taken for granted. I want to just outline several things here about the reality of grace, just very quickly. Several truths about grace. When you hear, so at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. God's done this gracious, graciously. This is not by works. Several truths about grace. Number one, grace fosters worship. You know, when I pause long enough to consider, even in this whirlwind life we live, and I consider the fact that God pursued me as a wayward, rebellious, undeserving young boy and saved me not based upon anything good I did in in my life, but based strictly upon his kindness and grace towards me, friend, that leaves me overwhelmed so that I would worship God. When I find myself not worshiping God as he deserves to be worshiped, one of the many reasons that could be the case, but I think one of the things that we need to evaluate, have we lost sight of God's grace in our lives? Or somehow have we have we bought into this entitlement mentality that, well, God owed me grace. That's the least he could have done. And that is not all the case of what happened. God, grace fosters worship. When we understand what God has done for us, it ought to lead us to worship him. Number two, grace reminds us there is hope. Listen, if salvation is of God then anyone can be saved. If salvation is of man, no one can be saved. There's only hope where there is grace. Number three, grace is something God delights in extending. You know, we shouldn't see grace and this idea of being chosen and election and all of these, these concepts that we often trip up over. We shouldn't see grace as restrictive, but as generous. Elijah thought there was only one. And God said, no, there's 7,000. Elijah was a prophet. I mean, he, he had it pretty much together, right? I mean, he just... He just had this powerful demonstration, and the power of God that came, and the Lord had blessed him in that way to be part of that, embarrassing the bales. Friends, God's net of salvation is likely greater and wider than you often imagine. I think oftentimes we, we restrict grace, and we, we look around us, and we see just how broken the world is we see just how depraved people are and we see how corrupted things are and we we look around us and we we think wow how could anyone follow Jesus when all of the all of the things that we're experiencing in this world but listen God's net of salvation is not restrictive it is likely greater and wider than we often think he delights in giving grace God delights in saving sinners he delights in being glorified in this way Number four, grace fosters humility. When you consider your life and all that you are, 
And in light of all that God has done in you, our posture ought to be one of humble shock. Friends, we all should be amazed that God saved any of us. Number five, grace produces gracious living. When you realize what you've been saved from and how it was God that saved you, your life ought to be lived out in being gracious toward others. Those who know grace ought to be the very ones that are quick to extend it. We could go on and on, but those are just a few things as we think about the grace of God. So then, has God's promise to his people failed? No. God has not abandoned the Jews because there was still a remnant. He comes back to that again in verse 7. What then? And he, he acknowledges the failure of Israel here. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. They were seeking a salvation based upon works of the law, based upon their own self-righteousness. They failed miserably in obtaining what it was they were seeking, salvation. But then he comes in and reminds us, the elect obtained it. Those whom the grace of God rested upon obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block of retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Paul acknowledges here simply that, listen, there's a remnant. It's not based upon works, it's based upon grace. Israel failed miserably in obtaining salvation, but the elect obtained it. Those who were chosen obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Again, these were not innocent people who were hardened. These were people who had adamantly rejected the gospel. The hardening of God then is merely a reflection given to people already in a posture of rejection. Friend, just a few words here. You may be here today as maybe you're new and visiting us today, or maybe you're, you've been here a while. And you may be, if you were truly honest with us, maybe with yourself, you would acknowledge that maybe you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Friend, I would urge you to hear these words as a word to you. One of the things when we think about being chosen by grace and the elect obtained it, some people will say, well, what if I'm not elect? And that You should never conclude that. You should never say, I may not be elect. Since God acts in grace and not by works, there is no reason to think that you are excluded. And friend, if you would simply look to Jesus Christ, understand that he is the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners just like you and just like me, and that if we would understand that before a holy God we all deserve to be judged and to be excluded because of our sin and rebellion against our perfect Creator, and that we would see that Jesus is the solution to our problem because he, God in the flesh, came. He lived the life we all should have and died the death we all deserve. And if we would simply look to him and trust in him and cling to him in faith, 
The promise of the gospel is that you'll be saved. So friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would urge you to look to Jesus Christ and trust in Him by faith, cling to Him, and He will save you. He will save you. Listen, do not put that off. The Jews had been given chance after chance after chance after chance, and they persisted in their unbelief. Listen, at some point, God will leave you in your unbelief. And he will harden you and give you exactly what you want. You know, the story of the Jewish people is a sad one. Not because it's about a people group that have never heard the gospel. The story is sad and tragic because it's about religious unbelievers. Our churches are filled with religious unbelievers. And you may be here today as a religious unbeliever. Putting your time into church. Try to read your Bible every now and then. Pray. Do those kind of Christian things. Keeping that box checked. Just going through motion after motion after motion. Hopefully that God will see your attempts as good and, and bring you home to heaven. That's not how salvation works. Trust in Jesus. And he will save you. So Paul, Paul defends the truth that God hasn't rejected his people. He, he does it through a personal testimony, a historical example, and a theological truth. Now, why does all of this matter? All right? Why does this matter? Why does Paul see fit to spend three chapters in Romans? Romans, had the, the, the church at Rome had both Jews and Gentiles, but it was predominantly a Gentile church. Why does Paul write three chapters to a predominantly Gentile church about the Jews. Two reasons. Quickly. Number one, this is about the character of God. The character and the faithfulness of God is really what we see these chapters are about. Yes, these chapters are about the Jewish people and even the Gentiles. Ultimately, though, these chapters are defending the nature and the character and the faithfulness of God. Listen, if it can be proven that God had at any point in history abandoned the promise that he made to the Jewish people, then no one, Jew or Gentile, could be assured of the hope that we have in Christ. Pastor John Piper put it this way, if God's word fails to Israel, God is not glorious. And if God is not glorious, God is not God. And if God is not God, our greatest treasure is taken from us. And we are turned into beasts with the monkeys and the porpoises. And all our love and all our affections are nothing more than chemicals and we must play make-believe all our life that anything is significant. Listen, the glory of God hangs on his faithfulness to Israel. His reputation is at stake. How can he say in the Old Testament, for I will not reject my people, and you get to the New Testament, and he rejects his people. So when the vast majority of Israel is not believing, the gospel, Paul feels the necessity to say, 
Don't let what seems like failure lead you to conclude that God has failed. He has not, because he has a people for himself, even comprised of Jews. So the character of God matters. This is why it matters. God's reputation, God's character, God's nature, God's faithfulness, God's promise. And then the character of salvation. The hope of the gospel is magnified as Paul answers the question about the Jews. As he unfolds the reasons why God's word and salvation have not failed, he roots the answer in the way of salvation comes. Salvation is of the Lord. It's all of grace. It's not something you accomplish or earn. If so, no one would have hope. And yet our hope in Christ is firm and secure because God has promised and God is faithful. You know, God's word has not failed. And he has not rejected his people. And brothers and sisters, this is good news for us. This is good news because God's glory is maintained and our salvation is secure. You know, God's promise to have a people for himself is not like the 20th round of a Jenga match. All of us wondering when it's going to come tumbling down. Brothers and sisters, God's salvation is a strong tower. We've been told in Proverbs, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. God's salvation is safe. God's salvation is secure. And all throughout Scripture, God has demonstrated that through the people that he redeemed. Whether it was a few on an ark, thousands in Egypt, 7,000 that hadn't fallen to Baal, God has had a people and God's kingdom cannot and will not fail. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. Church comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Brothers and sisters, God's promises are lasting. God does not forsake his promise, but he goes above and beyond to keep his promises for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder today of your faithfulness and your goodness and kindness. Lord, we thank you that even as we see a glimpse of what you taught here in Romans 11, Lord, of how you had been faithful all along. Lord, even though it was very few at the time, we're told there is now in the present, Paul could write in his day, a remnant chosen by grace. Lord, that is the testimony of us all. Lord, even when compared to the vast majority of the population of this world, that is the case for all of us. We're part of a greater remnant. And this remnant is secured by your gracious work through Jesus Christ. Father, would you help us to see that these things are for our good and for our hope and for our confidence. And Father, would you help us to cling to this as good news today. Lord, when we live in a world filled with all kinds of uncertainties and all kinds of broken promises and, and false securities, Lord, you never fail and you never falter. Father, we thank you for that. And Lord, it's my prayer that if there are those who are here today that have not trusted in Christ, Lord, that we would move upon their hearts 
and help them to see their need for Christ today and help them to come running to him and cling to him in faith. That they too would have hope. That they too would be part of that great remnant. Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us and we pray all these things in the name and the saving work of Christ. Amen.